Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, ooh, it's a biggie. We are watching The Wizard of Oz, because it's turning 80 years old. That's right, It's it should have retired by now, but it's still going uh, relatively strong, and we are getting round to it today. We? Who's this we? Why, it's my guests, the first of which hasn't seen The Wizard of Oz. It's Murray Jackson, everybody. Hello, Stephen. Now, Murray, you are pretty well versed in, in the world of, of film. Um, we, we sit today in your cinema room, surrounded by, I would say, probably a thousand odd films. Oh, far more than that. Far more than that. Yeah, mm. some hiding that I cannot see. And yet, you've never seen The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's correct, Stephen. I haven't. It combines two of the things which, look, when they're put together... I really say balls to okay old Hollywood mm-hmm. and musical ah yes this... and I would rather sit in a corner quietly chewing off my own arm well uh, we will be putting you in a straitjacket because we'll need your arms to tell us how many thumbs up or down you're going to be giving it at the end of the recording but Wizard of Oz it's never it's never even sort of piqued your curiosity given that it is such a, a, a highly regarded work. Well, Stephen, I have actually tried watching The Wizard of Oz, as I let slip to you earlier. I did stick it on one, I think, Sunday, Saturday afternoon, sat down in a comfy chair, started to watch, and drifted off gently to sleep. Mm. So I'm going in with a fair amount of prejudice, Stephen. I'm just saying that up front. <laughs> that is absolutely fine. But in fairness, drifting off to sleep is probably thematically okay for this film. So, Well, yeah, I'm actually more interested mm. in... I would actually sit down and watch a three-hour documentary on the making of this film Mm. because it um... it fascinates me. I mean, you know, Randy Munchkin's um, men almost dying from their costume um, makeup, Mm. uh, burning witches. Uh, Look, it's all there. Um, I've probably just ruined your your trivia segment. Oh, no, Murray, I can say very confidently this is the heftiest trivia section that we have (laughs) ever had. Um, There is plenty to get through. Oh, God, is there going to be like an appendices to this podcast? Quite just possibly. To, oh, okay, it is, fair enough. Yeah. I, I feel like we should watch the making of documentary that's also on the DVD and then have a separate podcast talking about that documentary. Because like you say, the, the making of this movie is more interesting sometimes than the movie itself. Yeah, it's, I, I would say it's right up there. It, it's similar, I guess, to another film which was made around the same time. Gone with the Wind, which I've never mm, seen, but I mm. would be fascinated to watch the making of documentary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the other voice you can hear is our guest who has seen the film. It is Dr. Carmen Dolly. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. You quite like The Wizard of Oz. I, I'm so excited that I'm interrupting before I'm introduced. Yes, I, I quite like this film, yeah. What, what is it about The Wizard of Oz in a sort of vague, non-spoilery sort of way that 
it sort of captures your attention? Um, I think it's just the fantastical elements, um, partly. I think this is one of the, the first films that really strongly utilise the technicolour and that's just so vivid in my in my head from being an impressionable, impressionable child watching this. Um, I think maybe also partly it's Judy Garland's performance. I think she's very authentic. And maybe also the fact that um, it was something that I was getting into when costuming was first start costuming and cosplay was first starting to become a thing in Australia. Mm. So it was like almost like watching cosplay develop at the same time that I was hunting down bits and pieces to to cosplay as Dorothy. Mm. Um, yeah, it was it was quite an exciting. Stocking time up then. on blue gingham, were you? Uh, yeah, and uh, you know red sequins and mm. all the fun stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Well, with all that being said, shall we watch The Wizard of Oz? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, for those of you listening at home, pop in your DVDs, pop on your red ruby slippers and walk down that yellow brick road, you and your little dog, because there's no place like home. We're watching The Wizard of Oz. Hey, Cinema Catch-Up Club fans. Are you, by any chance, a fan of the world game of football? of soccer. Well, we have a podcast just for you. That's right, Thoughtjar Productions is bringing out its very own football podcast and it's called The Funny Old Game. Join me and my two special guests, Ryan Fitzgerald and Tommy Dolman, each and every week as we discuss everything that's happening in the world of football. For more information, visit thoughtjarproductions.com or visit our Facebook pages. You can search for The Funny Old Game or Thought Jar Productions and follow the links there. And now, back to the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching The Wizard of Oz, and I'm joined once again by Murray Jackson and Dr. Carmen Dolly. Hello. So, Murray, that was your first time successfully watching The Wizard of Oz the entire way through without falling asleep. What did you think? Well, Stephen, um, you'd really have to be a little bit of a crusty old curmudgeon not to enjoy that film, wouldn't Mm. you? Yes. uh, It turns out I am that crusty curmudgeon. (laughs) So you did not enjoy it. Oh, look, it was... uh, Douglas Adams would call it mostly harmless. Mm. It it was inoffensive. Yeah. Um, Is it... it Partly just because, as you stated in the introduction, that it's sort of a meeting of two particular film types that are just not your jive. I think so, yeah. I think, um, look, you either get this or you don't. I, I, I feel I'm at a disadvantage here because my understanding is that here in Australia, um, particularly, that this film was sort of trotted out every sort of, I don't know, Christmas or Easter or whatever the case may be. It's sort of a holiday-style fair, and, mm. and you got exposed to it very early. Mm. And probably embraced it accordingly. And mm. I think that's one of the problems that I have with this and why I'm probably not um, the best uh, first-time viewer for this sort of thing in that I don't 
I'm not approaching this with that, that childlike sense of wonder or mm. that sense of nostalgia. Yeah, well, it was much like uh, It's a Wonderful Life, um, you know, as a, as a Christmas movie. This was sort of trotted out every Christmas and it, it was, yeah, growing up in the 60s and 70s, people would watch this every year on their TVs and they would associate it with their childhood, with family, mm. and it would become, you know, a very um, poignant film from that uh, point of view. And and that's, that's where I think, um, for me, that's, you know, it's a difficult journey for me to take as a as an adult coming into this now um and and watching it and 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 just um trying to embrace it with that childlike sense of of wonder mm. but if the film's no good i'm not saying it's no then, good Steve. no but I'm what saying i'm saying is if a film is no good but it's got all this sort of cultural attachment around it um i think it is quite good to have someone that has not had that perspective come in and watch it to mm. To have that reevaluation, because um, I'm I'm assuming Carmen, you grew up with this film being on a lot in your childhood. Well, the interesting thing I was thinking about this, yes, I did grow up a lot with it as a child, but it was not one of those ones that we had at home that I would watch continuously as mm. a as a young child. It was something that my grandparents had, and so every time I went to their house, I would watch it. It mm. was a film that I only watched when I was staying at their place. Yeah. But then maybe that's also tying into that sense of, of family and nostalgia mm. as well. Yeah. Um, even though it wasn't, you know, it was just like a, a recorded VHS rather than being screened on TV. It's still that 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 sort of um, going back to childhood and back to family kind of uh, sense that I associate with it. My memory of this film is, is basically the same. Mm. It was something that, it wasn't one of the high rotation VHSs we had in the in the 90s when, when I was growing up. It was it was at a grandparent's house, which is yeah. where I watched it. And it was that it's on at Christmas thing. But I don't have many memories of watching it repeatedly. I certainly have watched it a few times, but it wasn't one that... It, it certainly didn't become like part of any traditions in the same way that other films like The Muppets Christmas Carol, for yeah. example, is one of our big ones, or the um, the the... Uh, Mickey Mouse uh, Scrooge McDuck animated version of mm. A Christmas Carol as well they were mm. ones that tended to be on kind of like a higher rotation um, looking at this one because this is the first time I think I've watched this film in a very long time I yeah. think possibly since I was a child um, it's both very impressive and quite underwhelming it was, was my reflection um, and it comes down partly to the fact that I think technically um, this this is amazing yeah. to watch. Oh, Technically, yeah. it holds up yeah. so well. And yeah, it, it holds up so much better than even films that came 20, 30 years yeah, later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, at no point, um, or at very few points, I should say, was I sat there going, oh God, like this this looks terrible. Like even certain effects where you can see like um, when Glinda's bubble is slowly growing and mm. then she appears, it's not... Um, obviously as clean as something you'd see nowadays but it doesn't look bad yeah uh, or at least that was my opinion um but i also felt a little bit underwhelmed just in general by by i guess i i'm not necessarily sure if it's the the story or even the the acting mm. or it's yeah it's well, i think if you break it down yeah it, it look and and once again this has been very cruel to the film mm. it's a series of staged set pieces isn't yeah. it yeah. um that you know in, in narratively yeah yeah it, it it holds together but it's very much well we're setting the scene for this because we're going to have this song and this character is going to you know introduce their story and then we'll get a little bit further on and then the same thing is going to happen and we're going to repeat and and after a while you, you go okay well um 
I pretty much know what's what's coming next, really. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And that's not um, necessarily a bad thing, particularly for a film like this, like a family entertainment uh, Christmas time film. I think, to be honest, this is the perfect film to fall asleep to mm. after you've had a big Christmas dinner. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's very much possibly, yeah. in that sense. And, you know, perhaps that, I mean, it does have a lot of discussion of sleep and scenes with characters falling asleep, <laughs> which probably doesn't help. Um, yeah, it's it's an in, it's interesting, particularly um, one of the things that kind of stood out that I didn't remember was just quite how long we actually spend in Kansas at the beginning. Because uh, it's almost yeah. 20 minutes, that, mm. that yeah. initial sequence. So it's a, it's a decent chunk of the film. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't mind that. I actually thought that um, setting up the familiar faces that she will encounter mm. in Oz, in their, you know, their their real life um, character um, faces, that, that 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 was cool. I didn't have an issue with that. Um, yeah, I thought it was actually a really, it was it was really good. It was a really yeah. good strong idea, and in a way. It felt a bit more like like films from this time sometimes do a bit more like a theatrical uh, production, where you know yeah. you'd have those guys at the beginning and then they're off stage for a good ten twenty minutes yeah, while getting they're getting the all their makeup, makeup on. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, because in the original book, it's not really like that. It's not a dream sequence at all. It's basically a, a continued series of stories where she she um, flies through the tornado to Oz mm. but then she stays there she doesn't want to go back home mm. she she sort of goes on these journeys and not only does she you know encounter the wicked witches but you know she ends up being made queen at some point I forget there's some sort of kind of princess that she meets it's just it goes on and on and on so mm. I think um when they were making this film they thought the audiences of audiences of the 30s wouldn't they would be too sophisticated to accept a straight fantasy mm. So they they put it in this um, dream sequence, thinking that uh, that would be um, more acceptable to audiences because it's not talking down to them, so mm. to speak. Um, and that was it was something that uh, a couple of um, adaptations of this book did beforehand. It's mm. not a, a unique idea they had, mm. um, but I think that they did it quite well. And it sort of sets up she's got a lot of motivations for wanting to go back home, um, and it it, it sort of it gives you a nice encapsulated story rather than this never-ending sequence of events so to mm. speak yeah it, it is well-rounded um in terms of it's a very clear story mm. it does feel i think partly the issue that i have in terms of how i feel about the film is that i don't necessarily find myself chiming with the central message yeah of there's no place like home um i at least for me i'm kind of like Kansas didn't look great. I, I get the point that, you know, it's about family and it's about those connections. Yeah. And that, that bit did work. But also I, I kind of felt that that central message of there's no place like home and that you'll only find what you need in your own backyard and things like that. Mm. I don't necessarily agree with it. And that's partly just because of my life experience. I live yeah, on yeah. the other side of the planet from where I'm from. Mm. There are plenty of places um, that are unique. And yeah, I... I there are obviously things about where I'm from that I do miss and I do quite like, but not to the point where I'm running around killing every witch I meet and stealing <laughs> yeah. their red shoes to try and get back to the Peak District. You know, it's, yeah. I guess maybe it didn't quite connect with me on that level. How did you feel about it, Murray? Oh, I, I, I actually took up more that, um, you know, she should feel appreciative of the love and um, nurturing that, that she gets from mm. the people at home more than than the home itself, mm, more yeah. than necessarily Kansas um, as a place. So 
that side of things I, I didn't have um, too much of an issue with uh, I, I thought okay well that, that's 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 cool it's a nice warm message that you know we should appreciate the people around us and mm. yeah. and um, be more um, I guess respectful of, of, of that love that they've um, given us so yeah, from that perspective now I don't have too much of an issue with that yeah no I agree it's um it's interesting I read an article on I can't remember if I read it or I saw it on cracked or something there was an essay that someone put out that was basically trying to make the point that this film was sort of intended for women to to encourage them to go back to their homes after working in World War Two, and that's why there's this message of home and going mm. back home. To me, but this it is seems, before World yeah, War II. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Like uh, America didn't enter the war until three years after this, and then only then were you starting to see women going out into the workforce more. Mm. So to me, I don't think that really holds too much water. For me, I think that it's a big reason why this film is so popular in America is because of that home message mm. that. Uh, it, it's such a cultural thing that yeah. Americans tend to um, have this American exceptionalism that yeah. there is no place like home, there is no place like America. And I feel like that's it's something that resonates with American culture mm. and that's why this holds such a big place in the hearts of Americans. And specifically... American culture in the late 30s when oh, yeah, it was yeah. a very it was a much more isolationist um, sort of mindset than it had later in the 20th century mm. it was it was very much more about staying out of conflicts in Europe yeah. and things like that and also about um, that that you know sort of experience of America being the best place on earth yeah maybe arguably these days it might actually be going back more that way in some yeah, some areas yeah, of the country uh, I, th I think um one of the things here um just while I think of it Stephen if I was to put myself in the, the shoes of someone watching this in 1939 when this opened mm. um I'm I'm racking my brain here I cannot think of too many fantastic style films that would have made such an impact on an audience at the time I, I, I really if I put myself in those shoes this was the Star Wars of its day yeah, absolutely yeah. It, I mean the, the reason and, that, and that's yeah. why I think there is a great nostalgic audience yeah. for this yeah. film yeah and I think particularly in the context of the time when you were looking at a world war you, you know that was a few months away from starting you know there's mm. a lot of tension a lot of pessimism so, so for something like this to come out and just mm. have that message of you know the simple farm girl who goes to this fantastic world but just wants to go back home that's a really uplifting and comforting thing for someone to be watching at that time yeah so and yeah it would have made a huge impression I think I think absolutely that is that is correct it is the Star Wars of its day um you know that we are not covering many films that are 80 years old on this podcast yeah. we don't often cover films that are older than say 50 or 60 years um it's just the nature of how it's gone so far we, you know, when you look back to famous films from this era that are still regularly watched, Wizard of Oz is right up there. You're probably looking at other things like Casablanca, um, Gone with the Wind, mm. um, probably two or three others, and that's sort of about Citizen it. Kane. Yeah. Citizen Kane, uh, Maltese Falcon, those kind mm. of films. Um, there's not a huge amount of them, which I would say, of pre, pre-50s films, which are really getting a regular watching. But I yeah. think The Wizard of Oz is... Uh, it's undoubtedly one of them and we're covering it mm. because mm. it has such cultural importance and also so much of what this film has influenced the fact that there are so many quotable lines the fact that there are oh yeah between yeah, this and absolutely. Casablanca I mean yeah. good 
God, you've covered yeah. the A to Z, really, haven't you? Yeah, and you know things like things like "There's no place like home." Um, even even maybe lines which I guess would almost be like semi-quotable, but are still well known. Like everyone knows you'll talk about the Wizard of Oz when you go, "Not nobody, not know how," like yeah. that kind of thing. It's all these things. Um, the uh, the I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Absolutely chock a block with them, and I think that's part of the fun and enjoyment of of this film. A little bit is going back and seeing those moments. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, as I say, I, at the outset, I said, look, I, I'll, I'll be the curmudgeon here who, who says they didn't enjoy it. But I do understand the the cultural importance of this film over the, you know, decades that have passed since. I mean, this thing gets referenced in everything, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, Family Guy um, mm. to, um, you know, I can't think off the top of my head, but... There are so many different places that mm. lines yeah. from this film or, or this film is parodied or, or whatever the case may be, in a mm. loving way, mm. I yeah. think. And even other materials based on both the original books and this film, which have followed, you know, things like mm. The Wiz, mm. uh, yeah. things like Wicked. Let's not mention The Wiz. Yeah. Let's yeah, um, <laughs> not mention The Wiz. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, even, you know, if, you know, if the Muppets have done their own version of your film, like the Muppets version of The Wizard of Oz, yeah. you know you've made it big. You know you've yeah. made it as like a cultural touchstone if yeah. that's happening. And everyone knows the story of The Wizard of Oz. Mm. You know, they know it's about Dorothy. She used to live in Kansas. She ends up in this magical place. There's munchkins, there's a tin man, there's a lion, there's a scarecrow, and there's a wicked witch. And it's, I think it is very much the, almost quintessentially, film's 20th century fairy tale. Yeah. And it still, the fact it still works 80 years on, um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's brilliant, but it is amazing. And, and it's it's yeah. well worth watching. I think one of the, 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 the difficulties watching this film as a first-timer is also the fact that it's a different style of acting from what we're used to watching mm. here and now. It's it's yeah. very theatrical, um, over the top, um, and that, that goes part and parcel with it being a musical as well. Yeah, I mean mm. you can't you well, can't help um, avoid that. Yeah. yeah, but I mean in the Kansas period, there's a lot of uh, I wrote down 30s voices. You know, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of those guys like ah, see what's going on here? Yeah. Ah, you big lug like don't walk past of... Mrs. Gulch's place mm. and you won't get into any trouble. See, I'll like, get you, yeah. my pretty. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and but you're right. And then obviously when you get to Oz, Oz is just everything is cranked up yeah. it, it is hyper hyper realistic it's yeah. it's just like the fact that you arrive in a in a village of munchkins mm. i think is is very much indicating that you're about to go on a weird rollicking ride uh, speaking of the munchkins we haven't really touched on them yet um I, i'm actually surprised how little they're in the film uh, i i always thought that sequence that they're in was longer than the 10 minutes or so that they were there. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of the film was shot before they'd even cast the Munchikins because they just needed them for that, that one scene. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's not there's not a lot of them. For the amount of um, costuming and makeup and everything they had to put mm. into that scene, it's not a huge amount in the in the film. Mm. Yeah. And and they seem to let her go. I mean, the, the, the edge of Munchkin Town is only like it's, it's, it's a dozen metres from the town square. <laughs> True, but for a Munchkin who's shorter, that's probably a longer distance. Than <laughs> Half a day's journey. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, Dorothy, this was something you pointed out, Murray. Dorothy does accidentally kill a lot of witches. She does. <laughs> she is homicidal in this film, which mm. actually I kind of dug. Mm. Um, I, I'd kind of be keen to know if she'd stayed on an extra few days how many of the populace of Oz would still be living? Well, I mean, it's mostly witches and the older guard here and there that are kind of 
getting taken down. She does seem to have an unerring habit of of finding ways of of killing things without mm. meaning to, you know, dropping houses on them, throwing water on them. I mean, good God, I mean, can you imagine if she started kissing the munchkins? They'd just start exploding, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, you know, it's typical. An American goes to a foreign land and doesn't respect the local culture, <laughs> starts picking apples off trees, like, hey, what you doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, vigicide. Yeah, although that said, I'd forgotten about the trees, and they were brilliant. I, I loved those trees. Just like, well, what would you feel if someone picked off a piece of you? Just... The costumes held up really well for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the costumes throughout this film are spectacular. Like, oh, yeah. Like looking Absolutely. at the Tin mm. Man, I think the Tin Man still stands out as the most visually striking of the um, of the. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it, Murray. We'll get yeah, into it. Okay. <laughs> yep. I just love the idea that you know it's, these costumes were out to kill the characters that inhabited yes. them. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I, the thing I really liked um, and found quite amusing was the number of times that um, the cowardly lions. Uh, left eyebrow left his face um, yeah I did notice that yeah. as well yeah and, um, and uh, obviously you know some sort of continuity thing there but um, yeah that was great it's like yeah. oh it's back again it's gone it's back again it's gone did you like uh, Dorothy's hair changing length throughout the film I didn't pick that up uh, how bad the, next that? time you won't be able to unsee it particularly with the scarecrow bit because they went and filmed that when she had long wig and then they went and reshot it at the end when they decided on the short wig. So you look and in between shots, it's literally going about six inches um, up and down. It's oh, good quite God, hilarious. I'm going to have to sit through yeah. this again, aren't I? Mm. Are you? Watch the documentary. Watch it's the documentary. Yeah. I'll watch the documentary. Yeah. Um, Dorothy's companions are pretty fun as well. Uh, Scarecrow, um, again, just, just a wonderful physical performance. The whole time oh, yeah. watching it, it's the thing that I think is really well captured with those three is that, again, it captures that feeling of being at the theatre where your movements have to be yeah. much more uh, exaggerated. Mm. And uh, Scarecrow's floppiness and his silly movements, and plus the amount yeah. of times he gets like ripped ripped apart and they're stuffing him back with straw. Yeah. I thought the mechanics of all that were just so much fun. Yeah. I did like the, the confidence of everyone on screen, really. Even when it came... We go back to the munchkins there when they're doing a little parade when she's leaving town. And there were so many opportunities there where they could have actually bowled one another over <laughs> because of the, the, the sheer the lack of space um, on, that, on that yellow brick road. And yeah. yet it just all magically came yeah. together. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about the theatrics of it, um, Murray, because um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow, was not originally meant to play the Scarecrow. He was meant to play the Tin Man. I read this, yeah. Yeah, and um, his idol, Fred Stone, had played the uh, role of the Scarecrow on stage in like the 1900s, and Ray Bolger had apparently seen that and decided, I want to be an actor because of that. And he said, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm not made of tin, I'm made of rubber, and just pestered the producers every single day so that he could get the part he wanted. Mm. Um, but he does do, like, a very theatrical version of it, and not having seen Fred Stone play the role, I do wonder how much of that was, like, direct imitation and how much was mm. was sort of his own... Because the facial expressions as well are great. You have to have great facial expressions under that mm. makeup, so... So certainly, you know, it's it's a wonderful performance. But then, well, how you're much starting of it to talk me around, it? guys. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, the Tin Man, um, I thought was was great. Obviously, oh, lovely, all, yeah. all his stiff joint leg movements and how he mm. slowly gets his movement back with the oil can is fun. And then the Cowardly Lion is just he's 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 Snagglepuss, like you said. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's Snagglepuss. Yeah, yes. it's just yo. Oh, if only I had the knife. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> yeah, um, but again, it's again something that feels like it's very much of its time. 
but not distractingly so because mm. because yeah. the film is so wild and campy mm. uh, in already it's fine that you have a line that sounds like that uh, and it fits the the you know i just need some courage it fits that that whole archetype it's courage, courage courage i tell you courage yeah yeah although i do like he pronounces nerve with a u you noive. Know, the noive. <laughs> um yeah so we have these friends but they're being stalked by the wicked witch of the west oh now I quite liked her. Mm. I thought um, that was throwing yourself into a performance, wasn't it? With with a great deal of relish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyone who can uh, spend day after day in in green uh, face paint mm. gets gets a thumbs up from me. Mm. Um, her and Gamora. That's that's <laughs> the two. Um, but yeah, Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch is. I, I think the best performance yeah. in this film. Oh, it's great. And she was such an interesting person as well because she only got the role like after another actress walked out because she didn't want to be made ugly for it, the other yeah. actress. So they cast Margaret Hamilton, who was a single mother in the 30s and was working in acting to support her son, which apparently, if you have a distinctive face, you could do that in the 30s. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so she basically was a, a primary school teacher, I think, as well. And um, doing this, and she was a great animal lover, and so she hated doing all the bits where she was threatening Toto. Um, but apparently, every single day of her life after this film came out, she had children asking her why she was so mean to Dorothy. It was that <laughs> that impactful wow. of a performance, and it, it's great. Like it is, it is pantomime, but mm. you know, if you've got that costume and that makeup, you, you kind of have to do that over the top acting in a way. Like it, yeah. it just would be. It would be understated if you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm. I'm wondering here whether or not um, her look was modelled on the witch from Snow White, or whether Disney modelled um, the look of his witch on her. No, um, it was completely modelled on Snow White because wicked, originally yeah. they wanted to have the Wicked Witch as like a glamorous kind of Wicked Queen from Snow White, and then they said, no, no, that won't work. Witches have to be ugly, so mm. they based it on the old hag on Snow White. Yeah, um, okay. But the whole reason this film came out was because Disney showed that you could win audiences over to fantasy stories. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where it came from. And, yeah, it's a fabulous performance. Um, genuinely, genuinely quite terrifying, particularly, like, thinking about it from, like, the perspective of a child. Just this witch that can appear in red smoke and disappear in red smoke and fly around on a broom and is an army of winged monkeys. Like, <laughs> mm. like she's kind of cool, but she's yeah. terrifying. It's terrifying. It's like, yeah. yeah, the child catcher and um, all those kind of performances. Yeah. It, it's sort of the archetype for that. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's a... Uh, frankly, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, um, it is, yeah. On Plus, on the flip side, uh, you've got... The, the wizard himself, the great and all-powerful Oz, um, the floating green head and the near the organ with all the fire and smoke and stuff. Just thinking about that 80 years ago and seeing that on a big cinema screen in, in 1939. Yeah. It's, it's, again, one of those things where you're reminded where it's like, yeah, there's a reason this really, this really became such a cultural touchstone mm. because it looks so good. Mm. Oh, it's it a lovely really piece of animation, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, um, you know, he's like, get me the broom and I will give you your gifts. And they go to the castle and Dorothy gets captured, but then they free her, but then they get captured again. And then it turns out, uh, oh, there's a bucket of Deus, Ma Deus Ex Machina over <laughs> here because uh, it turns out that water melts the witch and she melts. And oh, no, what a world. Ah. Um, it's it, it, it is quite 
thrilling, even if it is, as you say, you very much know what's going to happen. You very much know, well, obviously they're going to get out of there. They're obviously mm. going to defeat the witch somehow and get her broomstick because that's what Oz wants and that's the only way they're getting home. But it's still quite fun. It's, mm. And I think that's one of the things that this film does well is despite the fact that it's painting by numbers, it's fun to paint these numbers. Yes. Yeah. Ultimately, it's revealed that Oz is a fraud, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, that, that whole business. Um, and... I did not realise when I was growing up watching this film that um, the actor who is playing Oz plays so many of the other characters yeah. in Emerald City. Mm. Um, you know, being the 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 not nobody not know how and the coach driver and all these different characters. Um, as a first time watcher, but obviously as an adult, did you notice there was? The well, same I picked actor? up a few of them. Yeah, but. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure I picked up the coach driver. Mm. His, full, um, his fullest of credits for Frank Morgan mm. was uh, Professor Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, The Wizard of Oz, The Emerald City Doorman, yep. The Cabbie, The Emerald City Guard, yep. and The Face Projection. Yeah, so I, I, I got all but one, I think, yeah. Mm. But uh, as you say, yeah, once again, um, great fun for an actor, isn't it, to play mm. different characters. So, mm. yeah, why would you not? Mm. The one that ticked me off and just like, oh, God. Glinda. Oh, not a fan of Glinda? Not a fan oh, of Glinda not, the Good no, Witch? This, you know, it, this whole, oh, you've had it in you all. It's all I'm with, you know. Okay, in, in the, fairness, in fairness. Just tell the girl at the start, for God's sake, before she has to make the damn journey. In mm. fairness, in the book, it's two different witches. So she meets the Witch of the North, I think, in the beginning. And the Witch of the oh. North gives her the ruby slippers. And then she goes on the journey. It's the Witch of the South who meets her at the end, and the Witch of the South knows what's going on with the Ruby Slippers. The Witch of the North doesn't. This so whole to- <laughs> telling half the story, it, you know, it, 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 it's as annoying as Obi-Wan going, well, you'll understand, Lucas, from a certain point of view, you know. <laughs> Just, you should have told him. Um, mm. oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that frustration. And Glinda, I, I, I think partly also because having seen uh, Wicked mm. and you get more of the backstory of of, uh, of Glinda um, and wanting to be popular, it's very much a thing <laughs> of going, I just don't like that character yeah. very much. She's she's actually quite unlikable. Honestly, and, and the fact that... I'm just impressed that she was 52 and doing that role. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah. That explains why... <laughs> She looked like she'd been injected with several gallons of Botox before she got there. Quite possibly. Each time, because she had this fixated, it was like watching the Joker, this mm. fixated grin that never <laughs> left her face, you know. Even if, I can imagine her going, well, you're all going to die now. And a smile's just on her face the yeah. whole time. She's a sociopath. I mean, she might be. Quite it's quite possible. Yeah. And also, now there's a power vacuum because Wicked Witches of both East and West are gone. And now. Mm. It's... Oh, it's all great for her. Yeah. So, you know, Oz has <laughs> buggered off as well on his balloon. She's she's going to be in charge. It's going to be like a tyranny with like a, a, a almost a literal puppet state with um, the scarecrow. The scarecrow. <laughs> yeah, running, <laughs> running Oz. Oh, it's all a terrifying dictatorship we never realized. Yes. Oh, my God, a dark the take dark, on the Wizard of Oz. Who would have thought it? The dark undercurrents of the Wizard of Oz. Um, one thing we haven't touched on um, before we get to the trivia, um, which I think is important to touch oh, on. Oh, the trivia's going to take a long uh, time. The trivia's, yeah. yeah. Oof, get ready, yep. everyone. Mm. Talk about a long journey. Um, the... The thing we haven't touched on, though, specifically, is Judy Garland herself, mm. who is Dorothy and is playing the most iconic role of her career at 16 i believe like, 16, like yeah. she's she's very 16. young and she has to carry this film mm. 
And even though it could be argued that the character of Dorothy is relatively one note, she carries that film um, superbly well, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dor- Dorothy is very much, um, you know, someone who is lost and someone who is trying to get home. And it could be partly because of the acting style of the time where a lot of Dorothy's um, scenes, it doesn't feel like she changes that much. Mm. But at no point I've, I, when I was watching this did I look at it and go, oh, I don't think Judy Garland's doing a very good job. She is yeah. she is really good in this. Mm. Mm. And, you know, the, the anxiety of the, the situation and so on comes through. Um, I think quite nicely in her performance. Yeah, she she plays very uh, vulnerable very well. Mind you, I understand um, she was highly strung anyway, so maybe that's just natural. Possibly. Who can tell? But um, but I think it's a lot of it is um, Victor Fleming's um, direction because the guy I can't remember his name, but the guy who was directing it first um, put her in a blonde wig with all mm. this baby doll makeup, and again she was kind of doing that almost pantomime style performance. Victor Fleming came in and looked at the footage and was like, no, 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 no. Um, toned down the makeup, toned down the hair and said, you're just a simple country girl from Kansas. And that was kind of the message he gave her. And I think that really comes through is that um, like she's very authentic in what she does, but it's it's a, just a very genuine, simple um, sort of character that she's, she's bringing across. And it speaks to the audience, I feel like. And it's just such a tragic story, really, from... from um her perspective you know that well she wasn't first choice my understanding or reading of 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 the history of this film she wasn't first choice for this role in fact they railed against her and and said no she's she's you know not good looking enough and and uh and so on um Mm. and you know you you have this role and the film comes out i understand it was wasn't a huge hit at the time but it, it's obviously now an iconic role in yep. an iconic film and to see what a sad um spiral downwards her life took after mm-hmm. and uh, this yeah it, it's hard actually watching this knowing what happened to the actor yeah what she was going um, through yeah, yeah because, because- Sorry, and trying to take joy from it, yeah, from the performance. <laughs> yeah, because she had a rough time of it. I mean, she was signed to MGM at such a young age and then, you know, was going to school with people like Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and in comparison, you know, the, the film producers would call her like, oh, our little troll or whatever. They made her put nose plugs in to shape her nose. How horrible. It's, mm. it's horrific what they put this poor girl through. Um, even for this role, you know, she had to lose so much weight they put her in like a corset to make her look more childlike um you know they were working all hours of the day and night and you know she she had this very specific look that the studio said she had to adhere to at 16 i mean Mm. imagine Mm. what that does to your psyche yeah and then as you say knowing that you know she only lived to 47 Mm. and Mm. um you know all the the substance issues that she had throughout her life and and things like that and just it is very very sad watching it um, but at the same time there is also this this element that Judy Garland had within her performances of that she evoked sadness and and sympathy in those roles that she played she was very good at at making people cry mm-hmm. um you know there's a there's a a second version of somewhere of the rainbow that was recorded yeah. when she's in the tower and trapped and because of the nature of how they were recording it she had to sing it live and even though they didn't end up using it it's you know reported that basically all the crew were in tears because it was such a 
sort of like mournful songbird version of of that of that song somewhere over the rainbow um yeah it it, it is a I thought she was lovely. I thought she's lovely in this. I I really think she glues the thing together Mm. with her performance um, quite nicely. Mm. So, and she she performs her songs well. Um, I think it's actually quite telling that most of the good songs in this she's involved with, and the ones that aren't so well remembered are the ones that she's not necessarily singing. I do Mm. remember we always used to fast forward through the Lion Song. I completely forgot about the Lion Song. (laughs) The the um not the if I only had knife but yeah the, yeah um, the, the king of the forest king one. of the yeah. forest mm, one yeah and I'm like how have I suppressed this what's going on here <laughs> this is this is nuts um I, I also think the Munchkin songs could have been significantly cut down yeah. not not to say that they need less time in the film oh they had to bring on more Munchkins yeah see? There's, I mean, oh, there's more over there and yeah. there's more here and <laughs> yeah. here's the three lollipop guys looking yeah. yeah quite twitchy yeah like they've all had a xanax or something before they mm. came on i mean ding dong the witch is dead is, is pretty great but but you maybe need like two verses of that and then have her turn up and go <laughs> mm. that's that, that yeah but that, you know that's me trying to direct one of the most well-loved films of all time <laughs> well so. god they had enough directors so yeah, true, why, yes. why not have Stephen on board as well might as well guys <laughs> all right would you like some trivia i would love some trivia oh god sit back and get comfortable everybody yeah i'm almost tempted to put an intermission <laughs> in this episode uh because there was it is there it is dense with trivia. It is yeah. absolutely dense with trivia. So I've gone through and I've picked out about 50 of my favourites. <laughs> Seriously, we, we probably won't get to all of them. But it's The Wizard of Oz has got so much around it that I think you're right. I think the making of documentary and all those materials around it is, is arguably more fascinating than the final product. Uh, we are going to start with the costumes. Mm. Yes. Um, so... When the wardrobe department was looking for a coat for Frank Morgan, who plays the wizard, uh, it was decided uh, that they wanted one that looked like it had once been elegant, but had since gone to seed. They visited a second-hand store and purchased an entire rack of coats, from which Morgan, the head of the wardrobe department and director Victor Fleming, chose one that they felt gave off the perfect appearance of shabby gentility. One day, when he was in coat uh, on the set, Morgan was idly turning out one of the pockets and discovered a label that indicated the coat had been made for L. Frank Baum, the author of the book. It turns out that um, it had once been his coat and that, yeah, he'd um, given it I thought it's been debunked. I think there's some debate around it. Mm. Some people say it's a studio publicity. Some people say it's authentic. Snopes did have it as true for a long time. Mm. Um, so God, you really have done your research on I this film, haven't you? I freaking love this film. <laughs> I oh, love this film. I've I mean, taken st- a huge dump from I, that right. I also like... You, you, I love going on films where I know stuff about like the production and the actors and just... Mm. Nerding out, it's great. Mm. I mean, the story goes that this was verified by his widow, saying, "Oh yes, that's that's L. Frank's coat." I don't Probably actually know what the L. Slipping her a few dollars in the background <laughs> there. I mean, reportedly she got the coat after production was done. So, so you probably wouldn't want to do that if it was some yeah. weirdo. And she's probably thinking, "Oh great, know. I got him to throw out this coat <laughs> ten yeah. years ago, and now they've given me back." Um, Margaret Hamilton was a lifelong fan of the Oz books uh, and was ecstatic when she learned that the producers were considering her for a part in the film. When she phoned her agent to find out what the role was, the agent simply said, The witch! Who else? <laughs> so I think you're right with that face actor um, thing, Carmen. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Very... She certainly had a very distinctive look and played like a lot of hardlining uh, um, 
folk toting shotguns and uh, mm. and things like that. Yeah. Mm. Although a lot of the Wicked Witch of the West scenes were either trimmed or deleted entirely, as uh, Hamilton's performance was thought to be too frightening for children. Um, I could I could go with that. Yeah, mm. I would understand yeah. that. Yeah. The Munchkins are uh, portrayed in the credits uh, by the moniker the Singer Midgets. They are named that not because of their musical abilities, but their manager, whose name was Leo Singer. Uh, the troupe came from Europe. Many of them were Jewish, and a number of them took advantage of, a tr- of the trip to stay in the US in order to escape the Nazis. Professional singers dubbed most of their voices, as many of the actors couldn't speak English and or sing well. Mm. Uh, only two are heard speaking in their real-life voices, and they're the ones that give Dorothy flowers after she has climbed into the carriage. Now, I didn't know that, that a lot of these... Because I, I knew about them going around America and trying to find um, people of shorter stature to, to play um, this role. But I wasn't aware that many had migrated and escaped what yeah. was happening in Europe as well. That's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't actually know that um, until a little while ago either. It's, um, mm. it can, can we talk about the Randy Munchkins? Well, amazingly, in IMDb's trivia, uh, despite being dense with trivia, there's not a lot of talk of Randy Munchkins. Yeah. But it is a commonly known rumour that yeah. because you got a bunch of people together who have got a similar condition and they're obviously not used to having large communities of, of people like them around there was some talk that there was a lot of socializing happening certainly on a conversational basis but also on a more uh, primal basis well, I, th- there was a report i read because I, I just i i'm i'm kind of fascinated with the trivia on this one wizard of oz secrets dr- dwarf orgies drunken brawls knives flattened boobs and stars almost killed um, but a lot of that Munchkin stuff, they say that Judy Garland just embellished and, and made up for the Well, apparently she was asked out by one of the Munchkins. She went on a date. Okay. So star Judy Garland went on a date with one of the most randy midgets, accompanied by her mum, because she was only 17. <laughs> but that only prompted the little Lothario to quip, Fair enough, two broads for the price of one. See, okay. I think it's one of those stories that certain groups would like to go oh that has to be true yeah. isn't that fun but at the same time it's, it's one of those things that i think is harder to verify mm. um it goes on to say they were drunks they got smashed every night and the police used to scoop them up in butterfly nets i love that mm. yeah it, look I, it, it's possible <laughs> That that's true. I I hope it is. I hope to God it is because I like the old idea that old Hollywood, which supposedly the the drunken bacchanalian days had mm. died in the twenties, briefly resurfaced in nineteen thirty nine in the guise of a horde of Randy Munchkins. Mm. Well, I think when you look at some of the stuff that happened in the twenties, a horde of Randy Munchkins. Quite good in comparison. You yeah, know? Mm. no one's getting hurt with a horde of Randy Munchkins, whereas mm. yeah, the twenties were another another thing entirely. Another thing entirely. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, look, I think it's um, yeah, rumors usually have some basis in truth. My my sus- my suspicion is that they some of them did probably get together and have a good time, but I I I have my doubts as to whether it was like just a consistent debauched uh festival can we at least yeah. entertain the idea that there were days on the set when after a heavy night's drinking several seedy munchkins did not quite get their choreography right i i, I want that at least i'm gonna say yeah. that that's yeah almost certainly did fantastic happen. i'll yeah. go with that then excellent i mean the production of this film sounds like it was hell so you do what you can to get through it mm. you do what you can yeah absolutely 
A recent study has claimed that this is the most watched film in movie history, largely due to the number of television screenings each year, as well as the various video, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K releases, which have enabled children of every and all generations since its release to see it. Yeah, I think I that's, believe that. pro- that's yeah. probably fair. When the witch tries to take off the ruby slippers, fire strikes her hands. The fire was actually dark apple juice spewing out of the shoes. The film was sped up to make it look more like fire. Mm. Oh. There's some good practical effects in this film. Yeah, some great stuff. Like like the the red smoke for when she appears and disappears um, in the Munchkin Village, I thought was really good for the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. Except for the bit where she got second well, and third degree yeah, burns. Yeah, shall we, shall we go mm. through that? Yeah, um, look, when they, they attempted to do that that effect the first time round is the one that we see in the film mm. and you see the smoke appearing a little bit early. a little bit early before she gets there and then there's the burst of flame and she's yep. gone because the second time the burst of flame did set her on fire yeah and she suffered uh, second and third degree burns second and third degree burns and her makeup um which was mostly copper based probably didn't help it probably melted which mm. would have just you know compounded things and then apparently they had to take off the makeup before they could get her to hospital and they had to take it off with acetone, which is nail polish remover. Yeah. Which is not, <sighs> I'm, I'm going to say is probably not good for a fresh burn. No. Mm. <laughs> no, that just makes my eyes water just thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. So my God. I, I, I went on to read that, that they had to reset and do another take. She refused to do it. They, she yeah. made her stand and do it. And that her stand-in was severely injured I, in the yeah. resultant take. I would not be surprised at all. People, mm. yeah people suffered left right and center for this film i mean a lot of the trivia which i ended up sort of cutting was just general injury stories of like some of the uh, flying monkeys where the the piano wire they were hanging on snapped and they fell a distance and got injured and things like that so yeah. i don't think there was a lot of ohs on this i, I don't think one. there really mm. was no over the rainbow was nearly cut from the film mgm felt that it made the kansas sequence too long as well as being too far over the heads of children for whom it was intended. The studio also thought that it was degrading for Judy Garland to be singing in a barnyard. Um, so, yeah, we, we almost didn't get that. Yeah, it's um, it's bizarre to think about, isn't it? Mm. And then, you know, a lot of the film, the, the footage that was cut from the film just hasn't survived. So it would be very interesting if that had been lost to history as well. Mm. They're, they're worried about messages for children, and yet they're encouraging a young girl to walk down the middle of a bloody road. It's true that that yeah. yellow brick road could have had cars on. Absolutely, it. you know, road safety. You know, look left, look right, all that business. The horse in Emerald City uh, was coloured with jello crystals. The relevant scenes had to be shot quickly before the horse started to lick it off. Mm. If you look in that first shot, first shot where it's purple, you can definitely see it trying to lick around its mouth. It's mm. quite hilarious. The scarecrow face makeup that Roy Bolger wore consisted in part of a rubber prosthetic with a woven pattern to suggest burlap cloth. By the time the film had finished, the prosthetic had left a pattern of lines on his face that took more than a year to vanish. Oh, Mm. that's suffering for your art. And Mm. I do have to say, though, watching it um, in a somewhat higher definition than the previous video quality ones that I'd watched... The the sack face actually looks really good. It, looks, it does. It looks yeah. really yeah. good. Yeah, all uh, the makeup. Um, mm. you know, uh, Jack Haley's um Tin Man makeup as well looks fantastic. Oh, let's um, talk that about detail. that. Let's talk about that. Well, let's talk. Let's about do Tin it Man. then. Yes. All right. Uh, Jack so, Haley's iconic makeup. What do you want to touch on, uh, Murray? Well, let, I think uh, come and take this away because it, he wasn't the original actor, was no, he? No, who was the original actor, Murray? It was Grandpa Clampett. <laughs> Buddy oh. Ebsen himself. Oh, of course. Um, so he was originally meant to be the Scarecrow. Ray Bolger was the Tin Man, but obviously they ended up swapping, as we discussed. Um, 
uh, Buddy Ebsen went on to play the Tin Man. They were doing makeup testing and he did a couple of, um, I think, recordings of songs and they shot some footage. They were using aluminum powder for mm. his makeup. Um, and then one night he woke up and took a breath and couldn't breathe and mm. was rushed to the hospital in respiratory distress. Um, so he had to drop out of filming. They hired Jack Haley. Didn't tell Jack Haley what had happened. He assumed that Buddy Ebsen had been fired. And then they just very sneakily switched from aluminum powder to aluminum paste and went, oh, that works. He didn't die. So, mm. yeah, let's keep filming. Yeah, that's, that's not an urban legend, unfortunately. But he got, he got an eye infection, didn't he? Probably, yeah. Um, um, is, Jack, is Haley. I, Jack Haley. Jack yeah. Haley got an eye infection from the from the makeup. I'm like, my God, the number of people who must have ended up in the the hospital wards after this film. Mm. Even uh, Toto, uh, who was played by Terry the dog, uh, didn't get out of this film unscathed. Um, he, he was stepped on by one of the witch's guards, oh, yeah, and right. they had to use a double for two weeks. Um, Judy Garland was actually very fond of Terry and uh, wanted to adopt him after the shoot uh, but the owner wouldn't give them up mm. uh, Terry went on to have a long career in films dying in 1945 and was buried in the trainer's yard so Aww. and I have to say it's some great dog acting yes. like when she's singing over the rainbow and he's like offering a paw yeah. <laughs> and it's just he is he, great. I, I really think Toto is actually a really strong performer it's, it's amazing what they could do with cattle prods back in those days <laughs> there is that as well uh, in the famous poppy field scene in which Dorothy fell asleep, the snow used in those camera shops was made from 100% industrial grade crystalline asbestos. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Everyone died of respiratory disease. Uh, the health hazards around asbestos have been known for several years at this point. Oh, my God. So, yeah, they were using... Yeah. But it looked great on film. Oh, it looked great. Oh, it but... looked great, but you're looking at it going, that's... Chrysotile asbestos. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. I think you're ruining this for people. No one will be able to watch this film again without considering that the awful toll this no doubt took on the company. Yeah. Look. look oh, you're right. They Who made cares? a lot of money. <laughs> um, in the song "If I Only Had a Heart," the girl who says, "Wherefore art thou, Romeo?" Oh, yeah. Is Adriana? Casalotti, who was the voice of Snow White in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, she was paid $1,000 for singing that one line. Fantastic. That's right. I forgot about that. Cause, yeah, I wonder Disney... if she went out and got smashed with the munchkins. Possibly. Possibly. Mm. Um, because she Disney wanted to keep her voice a secret after Snow White, so she wasn't credited in Snow White. This, I think, was the only other film role she did. Mm. And then just spent a life doing opera on stage, as you do. But, yeah, I completely forgot about that. According to the lead munchkin, Jerry Marin, the little people, in quotation marks, on the set were paid $50 per week for a six-day work week, whilst Toto received $125 per week. Well, look, it's fair to say that Toto probably did a hell of a lot more acting. True, but yeah, I think if you're there going, man, this dog's getting paid more than double me. This is this is a little degrading. Are you ready for the Are lollipop sh- guild scene? Uh, a yeah. little degrading? Are we sure it's one of the witch's guards took Toto out for two weeks? Mm, maybe it's stray, stupid bloody yeah, dog. Stray munchkin foot. <laughs> um, Bert Lars' costume, 
weighed 90 pounds. It was made from a real lion skin and was therefore quite hot. Uh, the arc lights used to light the set often raised the temperature on set to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. La used to sweat so profusely that the costume would be soaked by the end of the day. There were two people whose only job for this film was to spend the night drying the costume for the next day. The costume was dry cleaned occasionally, but usually, in the words of one of the crew members, it reeked. Good mm. lord. Mm. That might explain the floating eyebrow as well. Maybe it just <laughs> fell off. It was just stink lines kept knocking it off. Fell off. Mm. Again, looks great though. Oh yeah, looks yeah. great. Yeah, but I I feel slightly sad that it was yeah. an actual lion that died to provide that skin. Weren't they actually talking about using an actual lion for the role at one yep. point? They wanted yep. to use the MGM lion who does the roar effect at the beginning. Yep. They were thinking of having that and then just having a voice over the top of it. Mm. So kind of like Toto, just wandering around. Because there weren't enough health and safety hazards in yeah, this Yeah, let's have already. an actual lion that's going, yeah, yeah. oh, exit <laughs> stage left. Oh. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> To compensate for the extreme makeup demands of this film, MGM recruited extra help from the studio mailroom and courier service. As most of the Oz extras required prosthetic devices, either false noses, ears, etc., and the application took uh, extensive training, the recruited makeup artists were each instructed in one area of prosthetic application and then formed an assembly line. Each extra would then move from one station to another to complete makeup each morning. Okay. Okay. Mm. That's a very efficient way to do it yeah so you know they did think about some things and, and do them quite <laughs> well all made, all, all made out of asbestos was it Stephen or uh look who can tell who, who knows <laughs> I'm gonna guess there was probably some lead in there yeah, yeah. Um, but probably yeah. soaked it in chloroform first you know hmm L. Frank Baum's novel is considerably more gruesome than the MGM rendition. Oh, I'd love to see the X-rated version. Well, uh, for example, there are tiger-bear hybrids, not tiger-lion-bear hybrids, oh my. Um, they're dashed to pieces in a crevice. The Tin Man uses his axe to chop off the heads of a wildcat and 40 wolves. Uh, bumblebees sting themselves to death against the Scarecrow. And the wizard orders for the four of them to actually kill the Wicked Witch of the West, not just get her broom. Okay, so this book yeah. is a bit more, a bit more hardcore. Yeah, it's a, a little hardcore. bit uh, Grimm's fairy tales. Mm. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the sequence in which Dorothy and the Scarecrow first meet the Tin Man, as the three march off singing, "We're off to see the Wizard," there is a disturbance in the trees off to the right. This was long rumored to be one of the crew, or by some accounts, one of the Munchkins committing suicide by hanging themselves. Now, in the version that we watched, um, they, the particular visual aberration that caused this uh, rumour has been removed. Um, it is because it was, in fact, the silhouette of a stork stretching its wings as several large birds were wandering around in that particular scene. The conspiracy was disturbing enough for Warner Brothers to edit the footage, and in all official remasters released since 1998, the, quote, hanging munchkin is gone. Now, you can actually find that original unedited uh, scene on YouTube. Mm. Um, to me, it's just, if you want to see a crane's wing, you see a crane's wing. If you want to see someone hanging themselves, it kind of looks like that as well. But, you know, it's, uh, see it, judge it for yourself. Mm. I don't think it's uh, it's anything particularly gruesome. Yeah, it was very much the blue, black, white, gold dress of its day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, throughout the rest of his career, Jack Haley denounced the idea that the making of this film was enjoyable. Quote, people question me like you've been questioning me now. Uh, they say, must have been fun making Wizard of Oz. It was not fun. Like hell it was fun. It was a lot of hard work and it was not fun at all. End quote. A lot so, of hard work and asbestos exposure. Mm. Yeah. So 
not fun. Sorry. Um, Margaret Hamilton said that whenever she saw the scene in which Frank Morgan as the wizard is giving Dorothy's friends the gifts from his black bag, uh, she gets teary-eyed because in real life, Frank Morgan was just like that. Very generous Aww. and a little Aww. doddery, apparently. His, um, his performance, actually, I really enjoyed it this time. Mm. Um, he's got such great comedic timing yeah. in this and he plays all those separate roles so well. Yeah. Um, because like I, I was reading through the trivia the other day and I saw that like they were talking originally about having Ed Wynn play the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I saw I that. I would have freaking loved to see that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think Ed Wynn would have done a great job playing all the other roles mm. um, because he's very much a one-note performer. And I feel like apparently Ed Wynn had turned down the role because it was just too small. Yeah. And that's why they had made so many other parts for the actor to play. And I think Frank Morgan, he does a great job pulling all those off. Um, it's, yeah, he's just so funny. He's got some great one-liners. And again, his performances, they're just, they're very varied and very fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. Absolutely superb one-liners. Um, I particularly loved um, when they're, you know, talking about, were you scared? And he goes, I've laughed in the face of terror. Uh, tittered in the face of danger, chuckled in the face of catastrophe. I was petrified. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it is really g- good writing yeah. and good and good delivery. Yeah, and he, he is tremendous fun. Now, Murray, I'm going to assume that you've heard of the uh, connection between this film and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, the rumor that you can play Dark Side of the Moon um, with Wizard of Oz playing in the background, mm. and it, it times beautifully. Something yes, that, yeah. that, that is the, the, uh, the rumour is that uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was uh, constructed to match uh, the visuals of the Wizard of Oz. Now that I'm going to call bullshit on this. Well, you are correct. That's one where they've come out and gone... <laughs> no. No, it's just a weird coincidence. Yeah. But It is quite a cool coincidence. It is an amazing so coincidence. Uh, if you begin the album at the third roar of the MGM Ryan, using the NTSC version of the film, not the 25 frame per second PAL version, which apparently runs 4% faster, the coincidences include... The line, balanced on the biggest wave, coming as Dorothy balances on the fence. The song, on the run, starts as Dorothy falls off the fence. Uh, The great gig in the sky begins as the tornado first appears. The song, us and them, is played when Dorothy meets the Wicked Witch of the West. The line, black and blue, is repeated when they are talking to one another. Dorothy in her blue outfit, the Wicked Witch in black. The line, the lunatic, is on the grass, coincides with Dorothy meeting the Scarecrow. When we first see Miss Gulch on her bicycle, the song Time Starts with its bells and alarms. Dorothy asks Professor Marvel what else he sees in the crystal ball as the line, thought I'd something more to say, comes along in the song Time. As the Scarecrow sings If I Only Had the Brain, Pink Floyd sings Brain Damage. Side one of the original vinyl album, Up to the End of the Great Gig in the Sky, is exactly as long as the black and white portion of the film. Uh, Dorothy listens to the Tin Man's chest, the album ends with the famous heartbeat sound effect. This phenomenon is known as the dark side of the rainbow, dark side of Oz, or the Wizard of Floyd. And again, this is on YouTube if you're so inclined to watch it. It Mm. is quite cool. Probably not intentional, but, you know, the things that people come up with when Mm. they're um, uh, experimenting with various herbs Mm. uh, are quite exciting. (laughs) When they're experimenting with Pink Floyd, uh, which, to be honest, is about the same effect. (laughs) The day Judy Garland died, there was a tornado in Kansas. Oh. Mm. Don't know if they're connected. Probably not. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, that was kind of a a cool coinky dink. I think there's a lot of 
The original concept for the Wicked Witch of the West was to have her resemble a strikingly beautiful woman, uh, much in the same way as the evil queen from Snow White, as Carmen previously mentioned. Mm. Producer Mervyn Leroy had originally cast the MGM beauty Gail Sondergaard as a sleek, sexy Wicked Witch of the West. However, when they decided to go with the more hideous look, she said, nah and we ended up with Margaret Hamilton instead. Mm. This might be my favourite bit of trivia from the whole thing. Go on. The inside of the farmhouse was painted sepia, and the Dorothy who opens the door from the inside oh, yeah. is not Judy Garland, but is a stand-in wearing a sepia-rinsed version of the gingham dress. Once the door is opened and the camera advances through, Garland, wearing the bright blue dress, walks through the door and the audience is none the wiser. And I didn't know that at all mm. until mm. doing the research for this. And when you watch it, knowing that, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's genuinely a superb effect. And it's so, so seamlessly done. Yeah, it's such a clever way to do it. Yeah. Um, mm. So practical. The carriage pulled by the horse of a different colour was once owned by Abraham Lincoln. Ooh. Mm. Uh, who gets name dropped in this film uh, in one of the songs as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I'll yeah. pick that up. Yep. Uh, a group of businessmen gave Lincoln this carriage as a gift during the Civil War. At the time of filming, the filmmakers did not know that it had once been owned by the president. It now resides at the Judy Garland Museum and houses many different artifacts from the film, including one of Dorothy's dresses. Mm. Uh, talking of props, wasn't there um, some uh, history around the red shoes? Mm. Didn't they go missing? They turned up, they went missing, or something along those lines? Uh, Carmen, I'm going to let you take this one. I'm bouncing up and down in my seat. Yes, yeah, so there's um, there's at least four pairs oh. still in existence. Um, they're actually what, all made... all screen-worn? All screen-worn. Okay. Um, Judy Garland had requested that they make several pairs in several different sizes because her feet would swell during filming. Um, and also they needed pairs for close-ups, for um, uh, pairs with felt on the bottom so that the sound would be muffled when she was dancing, that kind of thing. So I've got my book out. Um, so there's one set at the Smithsonian Museum in the US. I think I've seen those, yeah. Yeah, and apparently um, the carpet there has to be replaced because it just gets worn out from people standing at the exhibit so much. Oh, okay. um, there's another pair that um, is probably the pair in the best condition, and I think they were actually used for the close-ups when she clicks her heels together. And that pair was uh, recently bought by Steven Spielberg and Leonardo DiCaprio, and that's going to be on display at a Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Museum, which is opening. Um, very cool. There's a third pair that was won in a contest in the 1940s as second prize, um, that this girl won for naming the best films of 1939. What was the first prize? I don't know. That would be that would second be prize. Yeah. Is probably Sinners. the Lion Pelt. Yeah. <laughs> she then sold them, I think, for like six hundred thousand dollars in the 80s. So not a bad second prize. Mm, yeah. um, that pair is the pair I've seen. They were on display at the Great Movie Ride in Disney World for a bit. Um, yeah, that was that was an amazing experience uh, seeing those. And then they're in a private collection now. The fourth pair is a pair owned by a guy named Michael Shaw, um, and that's the pair that got stolen. So they were on display at the Judy Garland Museum with the dress, I think. Mm. They were stolen in 2005. Um, for a while, everyone was saying it was an inside job that he just wanted the insurance money, allegedly, but I, I think he was a very attached to the shoes. Mm. Um, they were missing for 13 years, and they recovered them last year. Okay, because yeah. I, I, I remember seeing a few years ago a, a, um, one of those programs... Um, yeah, the trashy reality programs where they, they 
track down old and expensive movie props. Mm. I'm damn sure that one of them um, featured a, a pair of the red slippers. I mean, um, yeah, quite possibly, because they are basically the holy grail of, mm. of um, cinema mem- memorabilia. Mm. Um, and Debbie Reynolds had a, a pair at one point that wasn't actually used in the film, but they were kind of like this Arabian-style design. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're very bizarre-looking, but she had those for a long time until she sold them. Mm. Um, so there's quite a few pairs out oh, there still. Oh, thanks for but, clearing that up. Yeah. Early in the film's development, MGM discovered that Walt Disney was working on his own version of the Oz story around the same time. Rather than going head-to-head, both studios held discussions of possibly combining the two projects. They were actually looking at making it a live-action animation hybrid movie. Okay. So MGM would have done the the live-action and Disney the animation. Scheduling issues ultimately ended the collaboration, and Disney shortly after cancelled its own version of the film in favour of other projects and to not compete with the MGM version. But they did make um, Return to Oz. They did eventually, the yeah. That so. is a messed up film. Mm. What a messed up film. But then they had to go back and forth, I think, with MGM to get the copyright for the mm. Ruby Slippers because that was an MGM yes. creation. Um, yeah, what a messed up film that Margaret was. Hamilton does voice work in that one, doesn't she? Or is that... Quite, a... quite possibly. I know there's an... anime. surprise me. There's an animated one that, that got Margaret Hamilton back to, oh, to okay. voice um, The Witch of the West. Yeah. I'm just not sure if it was that one or an earlier yeah. one. Because I haven't seen it for years, but from memory, I don't think it has The Witch of the West in. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a weird movie. Return to Oz. Yeah. Hmm. It's like this witch who keeps um, all these various heads that she wears in display cases. And there's like these things called the wheelies, which are like people with wheels for hands and feet. And they wheel, wheel around and try and chase Dorothy. And Dor- Dorothy's getting like shock therapy at the start of the film. This is a kids' movie. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I remember yeah. when it when it was released. Because I'm, I'm, I'm that I'm that old. Oh no, because I was, I was you know, pretty much an adult at yeah. that stage, mm. and it was I think yeah, meant to be a kids' film. You can't return they to us if you've never been. Feruza Bolk. Feruza Bolk is Dorothy, yeah. Mm. Which I think was w- her first role. Mm. Um, but I, I seem to recall um, from the uh, previews of it, the, a large sort of metallic thing that comes around a corner and. There she is, and oh, it was just yeah. yeah it looked weird. It yeah. is weird, yeah. Yeah, sort of not not for kids. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of sequels, uh, when the film proved popular, MGM considered reuniting the original cast for a sequel. Hmm. Plans never got past the development stage, though, because well, one, Judy Garland was a major star and was having obviously great success in all the movies, and hmm. tying her down to a sequel would have been quite difficult. Uh, Margaret Hamilton, although her character was was killed at the end of this film, uh, expressed hesitation at reprising her role, feeling that the character of the Wicked Witch was already too scary for children and didn't want to do more with it. We're probably afraid of being set on fire again. Yeah. There is that as well. Uh, further, uh, there were extreme budget overruns and production delays that MGM encountered making the original film uh, deterred the studio from moving forward with any official sequel. Well, I hear tell it took a while for this film to make a buck. Well, yeah, it, it, it did was just o- so expensive. It did okay in America, and it did actually break even. But the reason that this film was successful was because of how well it did overseas, mm. uh, on release in places like Great Britain and Canada and Australia and France and all these different nations. They ate it up. They absolutely loved it. Whereas in America, it was, it wasn't a flop, but it wasn't anything special. Mm. Um, but it was that love that it received from its international audience that mm. really had people uh, and the studio going, oh oh, we've got a hit on our hands. But certainly within uh, the American market, it it did not do well. 
Mm. At least until I think there was like a, a rescreening in 1949 or something that did extremely well. Yeah. And that's when it sort of took off in America. Yeah. And then when it first appeared on television in the mid 50s as well, that, mm. that then helped as well. Although when it appeared on television in the mid 50s, it was all in black and white. Oh, I was going to say, it's <laughs> yeah. all in black. Yeah. What's so the that, point? Yeah. So you had to wait till colour came along to really get the effect. Producer Mervyn Leroy had originally intended to use MGM's Jackie the Lion, as we mentioned before, oh, yes. to play the Cowardly Lion. Um, they decided to drop that, though, when they realised that Brett Lahr was available. and um, was Probably wasn't going to eat anyone. <laughs> yes, yeah. probably. <laughs> uh, the Scarecrow is completely inaccurate with the Pythagorean theorem that he says at the end of the film. In reality, it is the sum of the squares of both legs of the right triangle that is equal to the square of the hypotenuse, or A2 plus B2 equals C2. Isosceles triangles have no such relationship, yeah. but we all knew that watching it, didn't we? Well, it's a joke in The Simpsons where Homer puts on the glasses and then, like, says the scarecrow line about the isosceles triangle and someone in the toilet goes, that's a right-angle triangle, you idiot! Yeah. Um, Don't try and take me back to maths, thank you. (laughs) And the final bit of trivia. Uh, Munchkin, Mickey Carroll's agent, was able to negotiate the actor's salary so that he was getting paid per week almost the same amount as Judy Garland. Whoa! This agent was none other than Zeppo Marx. Oh. <laughs> uh, he was running one of the most successful theatrical agencies in Hollywood at the time and is, of course, the younger brother of Groucho, Chico and Harpo, probably not Carl Marx. <laughs> so, yeah, um, one of the Munchkin actors was able to get a very nice salary. Um, obviously not on the film for as long as Judy, but mm. the time that he was there got paid pretty well because old Zeppo was his agent. Nice. Was, it, was it the Undertaker, not the Undertaker, the coroner... Uh, Munchkin, was he the last to pass away? Oh, I'm I'm not oh, sure. I can't I, remember. Yeah. I think from I, I could be wrong. I think it was one of the lollipop. Oh, one of the lollipop guild. Yeah, because the they're all kids, yeah. aren't they? The lollipop guild, or most of the kids. Yeah, they're. Well, I think they're little people. There's some. There's some kids in the background who are not little people. One, uh, at least one of them is still alive. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a lad. Oh, so there's still one alive. There's still one alive who doesn't speak. She's she's an extra in the background. Oh wow, that's um, cool. And she's she was a six year old when she did this, so she's like eighty six now. Claimed to fame. Um, yeah. Jerry Marin. Jerry was, Marin was yeah. the last surviving Munchkin uh, from the Wizard of Oz in terms of those speaking ones. Uh, he was a member of the Lollipop Guild. Oh. He passed away last year at the age of ninety eight. Oh wow. So you know. Fantastic going. And I wonder the, if he had one last blowout before he died. You know, one last <laughs> drunken orgy just to relive the good old days. Well, the picture of him on his obituary in the Washington Post is a picture of him at a, a decent age uh, holding a large lollipop and smiling and looking like he's having a nice time. Oh, so, nice. That is Very nice. Very sweet. Yes. He's offering it to a little girl, isn't he? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's what he did in the film. So, that's true. Here, know. Judy Garland, go on a date with me. Yes. Uh, no. Uh, so... <laughs> All that remains is to score the film. And Murray, you haven't seen it before, so you get to go first. What score would you give The Wizard of Oz out of ten? God, this is difficult, Stephen, because I feel like I feel like I'm I'm I'm, I shouldn't score this, to be honest. Um, But oh, what the hell? I will. Look, I'll give it. um, I'll give it six drunken munchkins. Mm. It's. I mean, it's not your speed, but you recognise what impact it had i i like the film technically um i hate the songs because i'm just not one for musicals Mm. um they don't do anything for me uh but i i i thought everyone was i I sound like 
coming out of a uh, you know a, a play that a friend's just appeared and I go fantastic costumes the set every was you all nice. looks great <laughs> you look like you're having a great time um, and you know I'm approaching on that basis yeah, yeah. I, it, it, it's it has merit definitely has merit um, please uh, don't shoot me down uh, but yeah I'll give it six nope. that's, yeah, that's, no, that's totally fair yeah that is entirely fair it is your opinion and that is absolutely allowed um, oh good for them uh, <laughs> uh, now you're gone too get far. off Carmen, what are you giving The Wizard of Oz out of 10? Um, so to me, it's um, it's hard because it's just, as you said, it's such a cultural zeitgeist. And mm. to me, it's also just so emblematic of that golden age of Hollywood that it becomes a stand-in for every film over that 20 years. So when you do that, it's going to, uh, it's going to have expectations that are going to be bigger than the film itself. But mm. that being said, it still holds up. The effects are great. The visuals are great. It's still an enjoyable film. Eight and a half jelly-covered horses out of ten. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually, yeah, I pretty much find myself kind of in the in the middle of, of both your opinions. Um, I, there were points where, when this film was happening, I was kind of going, I do kind of want this to hurry up, mm. um, but at the same time, the majority of the film is is very enjoyable. Um, it's. I, I think one of the ways that actually improves this film is watching it with with someone who's who's a child and watching mm. it for the first time. Um, my niece, uh, who is six, saw this film for the first time last year, and I watched um, a bit of the film with her, and it was the bit where they have that transition from Kansas to Oz, mm. and where it goes from sepia tone to color, and it blew her mind. Um, like, and she she was just she was completely hooked from that point and <laughs> and just really enjoyed it and i think that the film still has that power it's mm. still a very very effective text at the same time there are there are issues with it i think certainly the the act the, the acting which was the style at the time uh, mm. is very much um is dated and some of it's charming and some of it's irritating and it's it's kind of a mixed bag for me i mm-hmm. but i do think it is certainly a film that should be seen so um I'm going to give it seven uh, defying gravities out of ten. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's it's a strong film, and I would have thought you're a winged monkey man myself, but there we go. Well, well winged monkeys defy gravity. Yeah, mm. well, that's true. Yeah, I don't think they're aerodynamic whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so that brings us to the end of this episode. Carmen and Murray, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Stephen. And for those of you listening at home, well, hey, we've got a Patreon. You can join, become an official member of the club, suggest films for us, tell us about your favourite films that scarred you as a child. Just go to patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. You'll also get some bonus content there. Maybe the behind the scenes of how we make this. Just how many um, drunken orgies we have. Ooh. Uh, none. Then there is also the Facebook page. You can go there, give us a like, see what's happening, follow our exploits. Just go to Facebook and search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And of course, make sure you are subscribed to us wherever good podcasts are provided to get a fresh episode each and every week. But- I, I guess what Stephen's saying is, follow the yellow brick, follow the yellow brick, follow the yellow brick road. Well, that is all for this week. So until next time, follow, 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 follow us on Facebook. We are on there and there's other social media we can be found. But follow, 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 follow the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Join our Patreon feed.
You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.